I want to begin with uh, a very brief quotation from a man from Baghdad who is known as the Prince of Hearts, Abu Hussein al-Nuri. He was a companion of uh, the great Junaid, so a predecessor of Ibn Arabi by about uh, 250 years. He said, when dawn breaks, one no longer needs a lamp. Now the image of the Kaaba is known to all of us, whether Muslim or not, and must rank as one of the most iconic places on the earth. But this paper is not really going to be about the physical or historical or social dimensions of this remarkable structure or its continuing presence as a place of pilgrimage. It isn't even about the meaning of the Kaaba and its associated rituals. What I want to explore is what the Kaaba means for the mystic, for someone who has penetrated beyond the surface appearance of things into the unfathomable depth of being. All too often we tend to relegate religious forms to a particular community. So the Kaaba represents something which is meaningful if you're a Muslim, whereas for others it may become something like an anthropological curiosity because we have no access to its meaning and no understanding of its practice. My focus here is really on what does this physical box actually mean universally? What it represents to each human being on a symbolic level. This is not the wisdom of the heart considered in some abstract intellectual fashion devoid of particular form. This is a mode of contemplation that views the world apparently out there as a mirror corresponding to and revealing the reality of our own self. In other words, we are able to enter into a direct contemplation of the inner through the outer form. When the Prophet described one of the five special privileges that he'd been granted, he related that the earth was made a place of worship for me. That is to say that all places were given to him as places of prayer. Wherever one is, praying to God is entirely acceptable because there is no place where God is not. At the same time, from the very beginning of Islam, there were designated places of prayer literally a place of prostration, a masjid, in other words, a mosque, with a particular orientation. Next slide. In the front wall of every mosque, there is a qibla, a niche, often ornately decorated, showing the direction to the epicenter of the Islamic world, Mecca and the Kaaba. This is the focal point of prayer, no matter where on earth the person may be, this orientation, adhered to every time someone prays, is such an omnipresent fact of physical existence that for Muslims it dominates the sense of the sacred. 
There is a famous story about Abu Yazid al-Bistami, the famous Sufi, who wanted to visit somebody reputed to be a great saint. He arrived in the town, saw the man enter the mosque, and the man then spat in the direction of the Qibla. He immediately turned round and refused to meet him, saying, This is unfaithful to one of the customs of the Messenger of God. So how can he be faithful about what he's claiming with regard to the stations of the saints and God's elite? So there is a question immediately. Does it matter which direction we face when we pray? Isn't the divine present in every direction? Well, like Ibn Arabi often says, yes and no. Because of all the many directions, one is the one that turns us and reminds us of the real. So, the notion of the Qibla is a reminder. It is not the Qibla that determines the direction of prayer. It is the singular reality which determines prayer. Next slide. In addition to prayer, another of the five great sacred duties of all Muslims, the so-called five pillars, is to undertake the pilgrimage and perform the ritual circumambulations of the Kaaba. It has to be done at least once in a person's lifetime. It's covered in a great black silk and gold curtain, the Kiswa, which is replaced annually. The Kaaba is a really ancient centre of pilgrimage. Designated as a holy sanctuary, no violence is permitted within a 20-mile radius, and it is considered the centre of the world itself, a place where there is a doorway to heaven, a place where the sacred and the profane meet. According to the Quran, it was established by Abraham, or rather, it was rebuilt by him and his son Ishmael over the foundations of the primordial house established by the first man, Adam. It is also said to be the earthly image of a heavenly prototype, the frequented or visited house, al-Bayt al-Ma'mur. Now, the reason for going through all this is just to provide some background and make sure that we're all talking the same kind of language. But I am not interested today in the physical facts, except insofar as they provide a means of direct contemplation. If we delve more deeply into the inner meaning of the Kaaba, we have the possibility of discovering something truly remarkable not about the Kaaba, but about the nature of the self. But first, I want to tell you a historical story. At the beginning of the prophetic mission, Muhammad claimed the shrine at the, as the center of monotheism, and wanting the Kaaba to be dedicated to the one God alone posed a huge problem for the Quraysh authorities who stood to lose all the benefits of being custodians of the sanctuary and the associated trade. As a result, Muhammad and his followers were persecuted and harassed that they had to flee. When he returned to Mecca on the 20th of Ramadan, year 8, 
there occurred what might be called a civilizational event of numinous potency. Muhammad entered the great sanctuary on his camel, Qaswa, fully armed. He rode straight to the southeast corner of the Kaaba and touched the black stone with his staff, magnifying God. At this, all those near him and within earshot repeated the glorification, Allahu Akbar. The Prophet hushed them with a gesture, and with someone holding the bridle of his camel, he performed the tawaf, the seven rounds of the holy house, before wheeling away to confront 360 idols of the pagan Arabs that stood on the perimeter. A grand totemic circle of gods and goddesses. Pointing to each idol in turn, he recited the Quranic verse, Truth has come and falsehood has passed away. For behold, falsehood is bound to pass away. At this each idol is said to have fallen forward on its face, handing the key to the Kaaba, the key of the Kaaba to a member of the family that had traditionally guarded it, he then entered the Kaaba itself and had all the pictures of deities stripped from the walls, leaving only, it is said, an icon of the Virgin Mary and Jesus and a painting of Abraham. This is a dramatic and irrevocable act of iconoclasm, affirming the meaning of Tawheed, and the ripple effects were to be felt within decades in Constantinople itself. That has determined the history of Islam and Mecca ever since. But our interest here is in what does this mean as a symbolic pointer to a very deep reality. The idols are not simply external objects of worship to be overthrown before the one true God. They are a metaphor for all our human constructs of reality, mental, imaginal or otherwise. For Sufis, the overthrow of the 360 man-made idols by the Prophet at the center of the world was to be reenacted within each seeker of truth at the center of their own being in their quest for the ever-living God. The human heart, therefore, has to be cleansed of all that defiles it. When I was thinking about writing this paper, I came across in myself a very curious state of mind which I thought I would share today. Normally I don't do this sort of thing, uh, but it was a kind of blockage in which I wondered what on earth to say. And I have to say I've already delivered this paper once in one form. Why, I asked myself, should it be so difficult to speak of the heart? Is it because of my awareness of my own many, many shortcomings as regards the nature of the heart? 
in terms of really understanding and acting according to its dictates? Is it because of my awareness of this audience with its many people of heart whose hearts, like all human hearts, yearn to hear of the reality of the heart? Is it because of my awareness that Ibn Arabi is such a master of the heart that one is swept into an ocean of meaning when reading his writings? Or is it because the heart itself desires to speak and to be spoken of in a manner appropriate to its real dignity? Well, perhaps it is all these and more. So I ask your indulgence in trying to do what I can to indicate what can be found in this ocean of the heart. Every Muslim knows about the Kaaba. Only some go on pilgrimage. Everybody has an idea about the mystical heart, but only some visit it and only some experience it directly. To find such a place within is to embark on a journey more or less lengthy, which if successful may become a ceaseless circumambulation around the mystery of the heart. It is a journey to be taken alone in the privacy of one's being on the solitary road of the uncommon. Next slide. First of all, let us remind ourselves of the huge and fundamental difference between physical pilgrimage to a stone house in the middle of Saudi Arabia and spiritual journeying. The great 11th century mystic of Khorasan, Abu Sayyid bin Abil Khair, was once asked why he refused to go on the Hajj. He replied, Frankly, it is no great matter that you should tread under your feet a thousand thousand miles of ground in order to visit a stone house. The true man of God sits where he is and the celestial house comes several times in a day and night to visit him and perform the circumambulation above his head look and see and he pointed and all who were present looked and saw it on another occasion he's reported to have said if God sets the way to Mecca before anybody that person has been cast out of the way to the truth. It's a fairly dramatic statement. When another sheikh was asked what had brought him to Mecca for the pilgrimage, he replied weeping, heedlessness. Physical pilgrimage does not guarantee a real inner movement even those adhering to a spiritual path or practice may completely miss the point. 
There is a wonderful anecdote which Ibn Arabi tells regarding the eminent 10th century Sufi, Ash-Shibli. One of Shibli's disciples had just returned from the Hajj and Shibli, and this is the disciple's own words, Shibli asked me, did you remove your clothes in order to put on the pilgrim's robe? Yes, I replied. He asked me, did you at the same time remove all your own actions? No, I said. Then he asked, then he said, you did not divest yourself of your clothing. Then he asked, did you purify yourself with a full ablution? Yes, I replied. And did you purify yourself from all your faults? No, I said. Then you did not perform the full ablution. Then he asked me, and when you said, La Baker, here am I, did you hear the divine call to which you were responding? No. Then you did not utter the Labeka. And when you entered the mosque, did you enter the divine closeness? No. Then you did not enter the mosque. And when you saw the Kaaba, did you see the one whose house it is? No. Then you did not see the Kaaba. A few more questions on the rituals of the pilgrimage. And Shibli concludes, Well, all in all, you have not performed the pilgrimage. So go back and do it. These two stories particularly illustrate some of the real difficulties about religious ritual. On the one hand, in reality, no physical place is more sacred than any other. One does not have to go to a special place out there in order to come to a place within, inside one's own self and awareness. On the other, to simply perform a ritual without simultaneously perceiving its full meaning has actually very, very little value. It is as if we haven't done it at all. For the mystic, the physical Kaaba in the world represents the human spiritual heart, the place within the human being where the divine dwells, where the true human being, insan, meets the divine face to face. In fact, one can even say that the Kaaba and the heart are not really two things. The real Kaaba is the perfect human heart, the original source of prayer. And whoever brings their heart to that state of perfection and prays from there is actually praying from the Kaaba. Well, of course, knowing this is one thing. It is quite another to undertake the journey to reach it. We each start from where we are, more or less distant from the central pole of the heart, and we each have to undertake a particular journey with its own particular route. We have our own baggage, etc. We may stop en route, we may rest and pick up provisions, 
but if our intention is clear enough, these stopping places are temporary. We don't mistake them for our destination. One of the defining characteristics of all true spiritual paths is convergence. All the divisions and antagonisms that appear on the outer level are dissolved and disappear in the face of the singular heart. As Rumi once put it, for some the road to Mecca is from Rum, Anatolia, for some from Syria, for some from Persia, for some from China, for some by sea from India and so on. But once they have arrived at the Kaaba, it is realized that warfare, this man saying to that man, you're false, you're an infidel, and the other replying in kind, all of that was concerning the roads only and that their goal was won. However, a caution. According to Ibn Arabi, there is one obstacle above all that stands in the way of this harmony. I quote, The greatest sin is that which kills the hearts, and they are not killed by anything except lack of knowledge of God, which is called ignorance. For the heart is the house which God has chosen for himself from this human formation. However, it has been misappropriated by this usurper who intervenes between it and its owner. He is one who does the most wrong to his soul because he prevents her from receiving the goodness which would otherwise accrue to her from the owner of this house had he but left it to him. Such is the deprivation of ignorance. End of quote. Two fundamental points. First, the heart actually properly belongs already to God. He is the owner of the heart. And it is through this heart that all good comes to the soul. Now in the Arab mind, and particularly for Ibn Arabi, the heart is not the place of emotion, it is not the place of feeling, that is how we might conceive of it today. It is primarily the house of real knowledge. It is the place where God is known and the temple in which God already dwells. In reality it is his heart, not ours. Secondly, the usurper that intervenes between the heart and its owner who has misappropriated the temple that God has chosen for himself is not a thing. It is not an ego. It is not a self. It is simply ignorance of the true state of affairs or rather an absence of knowledge of the real. If we do not know God we can even say we do not have a living heart or that our heart is dead. On the one hand, the journey can be described as a journey to the heart, a journey achieved through purification and polishing. Ibn Arabi writes, the real seeks from you your heart. 
and he gives to you all that you are. So purify and cleanse your heart through presence, watchfulness, and reverential fear. End quote. Sometimes he uses the traditional metaphor of the heart as a collective, a reflective mirror which needs polishing. The mirror emphasizing the ultimate nature of the heart as completely and infinitely receptive to the divine revelation. So this, on the one hand, is a process of a journey of purification to the heart, to the Kaaba. On the other hand, it is already a journey of the heart. It is a movement away from considerations of I, of me, my heart, to concentration on God alone, his heart. Away from the usurper to the true owner, from ignorance to witnessing and contemplation. Ibn Arabi defines the journey very simply. He says it is the heart's facing towards God in remembrance. He writes, when God created your body, he placed within it a Kaaba, which is your heart. He made this temple of the heart the noblest of houses in the person of faith. He informed us that the heavens, in which there is the frequented house, al-Bayt al-Ma'mur, and the earth, in which there is the physical Kaaba, do not encompass him and are too confined for him. For he is encompassed only in this heart, in the constitution of the believing human. What is meant here by encompassing is knowledge of God. End of quote. Next slide, please. Uh, back. Back one. Thank you. Um, he's clearly referring here to something which he quotes very, very often, the famous Hadith Qudsi, Neither my heavens nor my earth encompasses me, but the heart of my believing servant does encompass me. So here we have one of the most essential teachings of the heart for Ibn Arabi. Nothing in the external world can contain the true divinity. In other words, nothing that we can experience through our senses, which is earth, nothing which we can imagine in our minds, however lofty, elevated and glorious, which is heaven, can begin to measure up to that which is unlimited reality. God is only known and loved within, in the heart of one who has faith. And this faith is not belief in the ordinary sense of the word. It is the actual realization, intimation or appreciation that reality is one and indivisible, that reality lies present as the ground beyond or within all form, that reality cannot be defined or known except by not knowing. No wonder then that Ibn Arabi is stressing qualities of presence, watchfulness and reverence as cleansers for the heart. This is the heart that God seeks and where he himself already dwells. Accordingly, the human heart must therefore be far more important than any external edifice which is built to celebrate the divine. That edifice is simply a mirror and a reminder of our own interior. Next slide. 
And yet Ibn Arabi devotes a huge chapter of his Futuhat to a detailed explanation of the mysteries of pilgrimage, drawing a striking parallel between the pilgrims at the Kaaba and the thoughts which cross the arena of the heart. Just as pilgrims circle the Kaaba, some in awareness and some heedless, so do our pilgrim thoughts enter our consciousness at each moment. Some thoughts aware of the sacredness of the heart and others oblivious. However, this perception of the supreme elevation of the human heart, placing it above all else in the world, got Ibn Arabi himself into real trouble. When he went to the Kaaba, he describes how she, a feminine being, both grammatically and conceptually, like the divine essence, how she asked him to circumambulate her, and the Zamzam well asked him to drink its waters, he says, out of a desire for friendship with the person of faith. I addressed a poem to them, O Kaaba, O Zamzam, how strongly you desire my friendship, but no, no. If I must get involved in a friendship with you, it is through compassion, mercy, and not desire towards you. The Kaaba is nothing other than our essence, the essence of curtains of reverential fear. The true God cannot be contained by heaven or earth or any word. And he then switches, very typical in his writing, to the divine speaking. The house is greater than anything else apart from you, O my servant, when you adhere to it. And he goes on saying, I considered my constitution to be more excellent than that of the Kaaba and her rank, and that as a place of theophany of divine realities, she was inferior to me. I spoke, to her, I spoke of her as a mineral constitution on the first level of engendered beings. End of quote. He describes this spiritual perception, incidentally, as inebriated, drunk. It was so potent that one night... At the full moon, he was awoken and he went to the Kaaba to perform the circumambulation. In a dramatic vision, he saw the Kaaba herself rise up in anger and threaten to prevent him completing his circumambulation. She spoke directly to him with these words. Keep coming on and see what I shall do with you how you underestimate my worth and overestimate that of the sons of Adam, giving precedence to the Gnostics over me. By the almighty power of him alone, I shall not allow you to circle around me. I came back to my senses. I realized that God wished to correct me. I thanked him for this and the affliction which I'd felt vanished. And end of quote. He then composes eight soothing love letters to the Kaaba, explaining her high rank and managing to calm her down. 
Uh, eight, by the way, represents the eight points on the cube. As has been observed, this uh, alternately amusing and terrifying theophanic episode reveals a crucial point. The Kaaba is above all a majla, a place where theophany takes place. And as the outer representation of the heart, the heart of being, it demands complete respect precisely because it reveals the meaning of the true divine heart. Well, we may also note that uh, when Ibn Arabi arrived at the Kaaba, uh, it produced the most extraordinary flowering in his experience. Not only this episode with the Kaaba, but the meeting with his Nizam, who inspired the Tarjuman al-Ashwaq. Also the encounter with the youth, who provoked the writing of the great Futuhat al-Makiyya. These Meccan illuminations... 560 chapters systematically plumbing the depths of every mode of human spiritual experience are termed Meccan not simply because they gushed forth from Ibn Arabi in Mecca or that he met the youth in Mecca. They are primarily because they spring from the very center of being. They are revealed to him from the heart and they demonstrate how the heart is the true locus for every possible experience. Next slide. Um, at this point I want to just briefly uh, acquaint you with the fact that in Arabic there are at least four words used for the heart, so they have a much richer vocabulary and understanding of the heart than we do in English. And I wanted to run through these to give you some idea of the complexity and depth of Ibn Arabi's exposition and other Sufis. And I'm going to begin, uh, next one, I'm going to begin with uh, the classic uh, categorization by An-Nuri. First of all, um, we have the Sadr, the chest. Uh, this is the place which is expanded from constriction and pain and becomes joyful uh, literally the first part of something here uh, Nuri explains this as the place of submission of Islam the second term Qalb which is the term which is usually translated as heart and meant when people are talking about it uh, comes from uh, a different root which I'll explain in a minute uh, is related to faith, just as we've seen the heart of the believing servant. Then we have the word fu'ad, from a root meaning to, height, to hit or to strike in the heart, and to be ardently excited. And this is the, uh, the place of marifa, of gnosis, of knowledge of God. And finally, the lub, or what Ibn Arabi calls the sir, the mystery, this is the kernel or the, the heart of the heart, the best part of something. And hence, in relation to the human heart, the deepest understanding or consciousness. And this is the mine of Tawheed, the place of Tawheed. Each of these hearts is a kind of container for its principle. So we can see those as successive uh, layering 
And this is very important to understand because uh, Ibn Arabi uses these words extremely precisely and it's extremely difficult to translate into English because we don't have the vocabulary. The root meaning of qalb, incidentally, is very interesting. It is to, uh, to alter or convert one thing into another or just to turn over. So the idea of responsiveness or receptiveness is immediately present. I want briefly to mention two other things before I finish. First of all, and I won't have time to go into it, there is a very important conception of the heart as the center. Um, this is the center of the human being, not just as uh, the center from which everything else comes, but also a center in a hierarchy. So from the innermost recesses of the human being, to the spirit, to the heart, to the soul, to the body. That is the, the five typologies which are usually used. When Ibn Arabi is talking about the heart, he says something extremely important about it in relation to the mind. The heart, he says, possesses alteration, turning, teklib, from the same root. Turning from state to state, because of which it is named heart, qalb. Someone who interprets heart as mind, aql, has no knowledge of reality. For the mind, aql, is bound by shackles, uqul, from the same root. He's playing with the meanings here. But, and here is the key point, if he means by mind, which is binding, what we mean by it, which is that it is bound by alteration, so that it is constantly turning, then he's correct. This is the same as our saying, being established in variegation, tamkin fitalween, for there is always diversity, but not everyone is aware of that. And this is alluding to a very important teaching that the heart is infinitely capable of receiving all forms. And this variegation, all the different forms that there are, is the actual truth in the world and is an indication of the vastness. So Ibn Arabi says, he who is one in himself is variable in manyness. In other words, uh, the mind is not relegated to a negative feature in his uh, idea. It is not something that shackles you and that you have to get rid of. You are only shackled by your particular belief structure. But your mind can become the expression of the heart, the flowing passion of the heart. So when married and in service to the heart, the mind is actually capable of infinite change and adaptability. In other words, it can act as a transmuter of spiritual light into knowledge. Now I'm going to finish just by mentioning one thing, uh, sort of en passant, that I don't have time to go into. Uh, the idea that the Kaaba as a cube also relates to our heart. So Ibn Arabi says there are six faces to the heart. Um, 
maybe when I come back in April, I will, uh, I hope, try to present a translation of, an, of a text of Ibn Arabi's which is really, has never been uh, critically edited or anything, doesn't appear in most collections. It is uh, on the nature of the six faces of the heart. That's a suitable plug, isn't it? Um, however, final point, please notice in his famous Tarjuman al-Ashwaq poem, which we heard last night, both in English and in Arabic, the f most famous one, which everybody knows, my heart has become receptive of all forms, a pasture for gazelles, a monastery for Christian monks, a temple for idols and the pilgrims' Kaaba, the tables of the Torah and the book of the Quran. There are six elements. I don't think it is an accident. Finally, Ibn Arabi, so often associated with oneness, but I want to stress that oneness means the non-stop, never-repeating, revelatory effusion expressing itself in infinitely diverse images and forms. It is this magnificent oneness and diversity that the heart is capable of receiving. Truth has come in the heart of man, not as a monolithic ideal of a better idol than all others, but in all its intrinsic singular diversity and variegation of image. Thank you very much.